0: Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Lord God, uh, we thank you again for uh, bringing us to this day, this Lord's Day. Uh, Again, that uh, we are amazed at your grace that you are the one who has revealed to us that we lived in the city of destruction, and that in our, apart from Christ and in our sins, uh, we were again children of wrath, and that we were again uh, held captive to Satan, and uh, our, we were blind. And yet, Lord God, when we were helpless, you saved us, and that you again uh, joined us with Christ, and that you revealed to us through your word again that um, that we were to fl- flee from the wrath to come and that, Lord, you pointed us to Christ, to, to the gate, uh, to the narrow path. And so we thank you again That for, for believers here again that we are on this journey. And again, uh, you are uh, our sufficiency, you are our supply, you are our protection, you are our help. Are, and that we, would, we thank you and we ask and pray that your Holy Spirit would be in our interpreter. Uh, that you would open your word to us, that you would continually teach us, that you would inf- and help us to fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So again, we thank you for our time together, and we ask your blessing upon uh, our study of Pilgrim's progress, and it would glorify you, and magnify you. So again, we thank you for our time, and we ask this in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so we are on a new chapter, and this is kind of the segue is that our Protagonist Christian was in the slough, and if you were here last week, you remember what a slough was. It's not a cow, uh, with a or a animal of some type. Uh, it's a bog. It's a marsh. It's a um, a dirty place. And him and another character fell into it. And what was the name of that other character? Pliable. Pliable. Who said that? Thank you very much, Pliable. I'm gonna have to get some some rewards next time for some of these questions. Yes, pliable, right? And um, so pliable uh and christian they're they're wallowing in the mire okay they're struggling in the mire and then uh you know pliable says this is too much uh it's too much of sacrifice it's too hard for me i'm out of here he bolts right because he has no burden and uh poor christian cries out for help and god sends help <laughs> the character's name is Help. Come on, people. Yeah, so, and so Help comes and Help pulls him out of uh, the slough, right? And of course, Christian's a little bit m- uh, miffed about this, saying, well, look, why, why isn't there a sign? Uh, why don't they f- fix this place? Why don't they fill it with dirt and basically it not being the, 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 the problem that it is? And then uh, Help reminds him, as if hither hey, steps, right? You should have seen it. Uh, and by the way, what does the slough represent? We kind of talked about that last time. What does the slough represent? Remember? It's a place that collects what? Worries and fears. Worries, fears, the conviction of sin. Right? And so, um, the, uh, that and there's steps. And the steps we talked about last time, what, what are those steps that, uh, again, the pilgrims could avoid falling into the slough the promises of God. Remember that? The promises of God, right? So, again, when we are, we're under conviction, when we struggle with sin, when we feel overwhelmed by our shame and our guilt and all the, you know, the, 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 the filth of the corruption of, of our, our old nature, again, the promises of God's forgiveness are precious, right? And they help us to navigate and, and not fall into this uh, quicksand uh, of guilt. So, uh, then help directs him now to where? Where, where, where are we going next? Come on. The Wicked wicked Gate. There we go. All right. So that's our study. And also for just recording purposes, um, Christian is finally going to reach the narrow gate, the Wicked Gate, and so on. So on your outline on page one there, uh, it says from the the actual text, um, at last, a serious person came to the gate named Goodwill and asked uh, who who was there uh, from whence he came and what he wanted. Christian responded, I am a poor burdened sinner coming to, from the city of destruction. I'm going to the celestial city that I may be saved from the wrath to come. I've been informed, sir, that the way to the celestial city is through this gate. Are you willing to let me in or let me enter? Ghibli replied, I am willing with all my heart. And with this, he opened the gate. So this is where we're in the story. And, uh, And it's interesting, too, is that there's a lot of stuff going on here. First of all, you know, he has the sign over, says knock, and and the door shall be opened, right? And he gets to the gate, and he knocks, and it's interesting is that he has to knock several times. Um, You'd think immediately he'd knock, and boom, he's in, right? The door just opens up, right? And so, uh, and depending on the versions that you read, Goodwill shows up, and he's kind of like, you know, someone's like, Who's there? You know, kind of like he really wants. That's a great voice, right? Um, You know, it's and so he's just not going to open the door for any Tom, Dick, or Harry. He's going to only open it up for people who are true pilgrims, right? And so, what are the qualities of a true pilgrim who desperately wants to go through the the, the, the wicked gate or the the narrow gate? Number one, he confesses to be a poor, burdened sinner. And I like that line here: is this declaration qualifies rather than disqualifies Christian? when we talk about uh, entrance into the kingdom of God and into the community of Christ and into the church and so on, it's not uh, one of perfection. It's not one of uh, pedigree. It's not one of intelligence. It's not one of human works. It's what? What qualifies you into Jesus? Depravity, sin. (laughs) sin, right, that's right. Um, You have to again uh, confess, admit, and know that you again are in great need of salvation because you're a sinner. And so, uh, and I, it goes on that on uh, our outline here, says he knows, Christian knows, that uh, he's a wrath-deserving sinner and where he desires to go is Mount Zion, of course, the celestial city. Also, the second bullet point there is that he seeks deliverance from the coming wrath. Uh, this pilgrim differs in many modern counterparts who, who respond to religious appeals so they might attain imp- improvements and so on. This is like pliable. What's his motivation for trying to get to the celestial city? Rewards, right? The good stuff, the blessings. Again, and those are true and those are real. But again, he does not have that burden, right? He is not aware. Again, is that um, for those who are outside of Christ, those who have not repented, those who are not saved, they're under the wrath of God, right? And so that is a motivation. Is again, I realize is that um, that wrath. Again, how does that removed and, and redirected? And then finally, uh, he desires interest into the way of life. And now you have the gatekeeper. And part of the question is you know, who, the gatekeeper, who's that represent? And there's lots of different theories about that, whether that's God, Jesus. Uh, you at the very bottom of my, my uh, bullet point here. Uh, Jesus Christ is portrayed, you know, he's obviously the door. When you think about John's gospel, Jesus is the door. Um, again, he's, uh, and so he's the entrance there. And so uh, they have this interview. And uh, if you go on to page two of the outline, and point three, Goodwill quickly pulls Christian in. And that's what's, what's really interesting is that uh, they have this little interview. Uh, he, uh, Christian reveals again his need for salvation. Goodwill says, I'm willing to bring you in. And then he just grabs him and just pulls him in. And then like, Christian's like, like, what's going on here? What's going on? Yeah. And part of what's going on here, on the little, uh, my high-tech pictures on this, which I know you can see a lot of details here. If um, you can see a little in the corner there, there's a castle. Okay, there's a castle. So here's the door, here's goodwill, here's poor Christian, And in this castle, there's, a, there's an individual at the top, Alright. And who is that? If you've read the book, Belzebub, right? Beelzebub, right? King of the, uh, Lord of the Flies, right? Okay, okay, the devil, all right? Okay, so if you're not familiar with that. And so on page two of the outline, Beelzebub attacks those who are entering into God's kingdom, hoping that they may die before they can enter in. And remember, of course, Satan kills, steals, and destroys. Satan wants to, again, basically annihilate, wipe out everything and everyone and before they can be saved. Before, uh, and, and what's happening, if you picture in your mind, is that from this castle, there, uh, for pilgrims who are trying to get into the door, there's arrows flying. And we'll see this before, is that um, arrows or darts or missiles, uh, you know, Ephesians 6 kind of thing here is common. And so Spurgeon has uh, uh, some uh, explanations what he believes some of these fiery arrows, what they are. And from his writings, Spurgeon said, and these are pretty interesting, there are seven of them. Uh, one arrow is the suggestion that, of the vileness of our sins, that they are too many, too frequent, and too hideous to be forgiven. And so a lot of times, one the reasons why pe- sometimes people... Are supposedly hesitant to want to again believe the gospel or to come to Christ and so on. There could be that suggestion the suggestion that it's, that it's too late to be saved, that the day of grace has passed since many gospel invitations have been refused. Right? That we would talk about obstinate, someone who's stubborn, someone who says, again, you know, uh, it's too late for me. Number three, the suggestion that the Holy Spirit has been too resolutely resisted following earlier religious involvement. And we'll be talking a lot again about uh, individuals who start out well, like pliable or others, and again later on they fall away for various reasons. Uh, Number four, the suggestion that a pilgrim is not one of God's elect and therefore his entrance is impossible. And that's kind of a Calvinistic thing there, okay? Is that, you know, I'm not one of God's elect. Well, how do you know you're not one of God's elect? And so, but that that mind game we start playing a little bit there is that, um, that, uh, you know, I can't be for various reasons. Uh, Number five, the suggestion that the imparable sin has been committed and that a pilgrim has now been abandoned by God. And you get this a lot when you talk to people that they actually, they believe that they've committed the imparable sin. Right? the sin too big for, that God cannot forgive right? um, you have number six the suggestion that to trust in Christ is presumptuous that he is too great and pilgrims are too insignificant I call this my Roman Catholic argument um, if you're familiar with Roman Catholicism uh, this idea, again, is that, you know, to uh, to have this, this idea of uh, understanding that you can actually have assurance of salvation uh, and that God basically can forgive every sin through Christ, uh, you know, now that's beyond us, or beyond, uh, you know, for us to know on this side of, the, of uh, salvation. And finally, number seven, the suggestion that suicide presents the best way of escape from sin, guilt, and despair. And that's, the mo- I would argue, the modern argument. A lot of times, again, is that... Um, my life is terrible, I'm in pain, I'm suffering, uh, there's great, great, great despair, and therefore therefore, uh, we don't have a view that there's no afterlife, and so let's just end it all now. And those are satanic suggestions. Those are fiery darts. Those are things, again, that that as, whether it's in the culture, in the world, non-Christians hear this, or even sometimes Christians struggle with this, these are things that try to keep us from going through the, 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 the narrow gate. Now, the other point here that's going to be controversial, and I, and I was talking to James here a little bit about this this morning is about when is Christian saved all right and you think that typically the popular view is that well he saved when he reaches the hill of deliverance right he's got this big burden on his back he goes through the narrow gate he has to do a lot of other things too before he eventually reaches this this hill right where he sees the cross and then there's this, the, the, the the tomb at the base of the, of the, the hill and then it, the, the, the burden rolls off he's saved boom okay He's, uh, but the, the, the controversy is that, um, on your line here, see the two things. A point of considerable controversy uh, was Christian was saved, either one, when he entered through the wicked gate, or, or he was saved when the burden rolled off his back. Because there are a number of people who would say, again, is that, uh, and these are people who are either theologians or pastors or individuals who would say, well, it was when he went through the gate, right? But he still has the burden. So we have a little bit of a quandary here, all right? And, let me to, and probably more, a more famous example of the quandary is of course Spurgeon, who on page three here, uh, he's got a fairly lengthy quote here, but I need to read a, a bit of it, because it's interesting. Um, Spurgeon would write, or he's actually preaching this, There are instances on record in biographies. uh, There are many many known to us, and perhaps our own cases are among them, in which coming to Christ is a matter of struggle, of effort, of disappointment, of long waiting, and at last a kind of desperation by which uh, we were forced to come. An interesting couple lines there. You must have read Mr. Uh, John Bunyan's description of how the, the pilgrims came to the wicked gate. They were appointed, remember, by evangelists to a light and to a gate, and they went that way according to his bidding. I have told you sometimes the story of a young man in Edinburgh who is very anxious to speak to others about their souls. So he's going to tell about the story again, this young man who wants to be a missionary. He says, well, instead of going to another country, I'm just going to go my own backyard here, right? So, um, so he's, here's, this is his, uh, his method here. So he, he addresses a, an old muscle, muscle bird fish, fish wife, okay? And it's like, wow. And so this is a woman who carries, basically, fish on her back, like some kind of either a sack or some kind, of, some kind of rack or something like that. But she's this salty, no pun intended, kind of earthy woman. You know, basically, he's trying to, this young man wants to evangelize, wants to present the gospel to her. And he looks at the burden on her back, her back and says, okay, this is my, my bridge. This is my way to communicate with her, all right? So he goes on and says, uh, here you are with your burden. I, she said. He asked her, do you, do you ever feel a spiritual burden? Yes, she said, resting a bit. I felt the spiritual burden years ago before you were born, and I got rid of it. Uh, got rid of it too, but I did not go the same way to work that Pil- Bunyan's Pilgrim did. Our young friend was greatly surprised to hear her say that, and thought she must be under grievous error, and therefore begged her to explain. No, said she. When I was under concern of soul, I heard a true gospel minister who bade me to look to the cross of Christ, and there I lost my load of sin. I did not hear one of those milk and water preachers, wow, milk and water preachers, like Bunyan's evangelist. How, said the young friend, did you make that out? Why, that evangelist, when he met that man with the burden on his back, said to him, do you see that wicket gate? No, said he, I don't. Do you see the light? I think I do. Why, man, said she, he should not have spoken about wicked gates or lights, but he should have said, Do you see Jesus Christ hanging on the cross? Look to him, and your burden will fall off your shoulder. He sent that man around the wrong way, and he sent him through the, uh, to the wicked gate, and much good he got by it, for he was likely to have been choked in by the slough of the spawn before long. I tell you, I looked once at the cross, and away went my burden. What, said the young man, did you never go through the slough of the spawn Ah, she, uh, said she, many a time, more than I care to tell. But at the first I heard the preacher say, look to Christ, and I looked to him. I have been through the slough of Despond since that, but let me tell you, sir, it's much easier to go th- through that slough with your burden off than it is with your burden on. And it's a very interesting line there. And so it is. Blessed are those whose, uh, are they whose eyes are only and altogether on the crucified. The older I grow, the more sure I am of this. This is a, a Spurgeon speaking. That we must have done with self in all forms and see Jesus only if we are to be, if we be at peace, was John Bunyan wrong? Certainly not. He was describing things as they generally are. Was the old woman wrong? No, she was perfectly right. She was describing things as they ought to be and as I wish they would uh, wish they were always were. Still, the experience is not always as it ought to be, and much of the experience of Christians is not a Christian experience. So. Again, you can meditate on that, think about that a bit here, because we've been talking a lot about that different uh, Christians have different experiences spiritually, right? And the awareness of the, the burden of sin we talked about before, and again, the, uh, the conviction of sin, what that looked like, and again, how eventually the Lord uses that to bring us to focus upon the person and work of Jesus Christ and saving faith, and eventually assurance of salvation. Um, I have one explanation here from uh, David Calhoun's book. I mentioned this on the very first day here. I highly recommend it. He was my uh, history uh, teacher in, in, in seminary. And his solution to this uh, dilemma, a little bit, if it, if it is a dilemma to you, says one solution to the problem is to see Christians' experience at the cross not as salvation, but as assurance of salvation. Mm-hmm. Okay? Um, he had been pulled through the gate by goodwill, he knew the way of salvation. But his conscience was still not at peace, and that's Bunyan, right? Remember again, Pilgrim's Progress as an allegory—it's Bunyan's biography, his spiritual biography, right? Um, it says here afterwards he came to understand the cross and receive assurance of his release from sin. This was Bunyan's own experience. Christian did not take uh, did not take through the wicked gate the love of sin, but only the weight of sin. Like Bunyan, for a time his conscience was not at peace until he came to the cross. And was assured of release from his sin. So there's a lot more to this, and again, uh, it's interesting the debate on this. I didn't realize how much of a debate it was, even within Legionaire Ministries. Uh, you've got uh, when they do conferences, sometimes Derek Thomas, or Derek, yeah, Doctor Ter- Derek Thomas. He has his particular view. Sinclair Ferguson has his particular view. It's like ah, okay. So you get the idea there. All right, uh, any questions at this point? any controversy at this point? <laughs> We're going to say, I'm going to say, on record, that I believe, again, that, again, Pilgrim is saved going through the gate, all right? And eventually, and it will be, and the lack of assurance is a huge issue in Pilgrim's progress, all right? And it will get better and better. Uh, and, of course, most people, from a popular view, they look at, the, again, when he reaches the hill, the burden falls off, that's when he's saved. Again, it's, um, you can, you uh, can, have your view you on that. All right, so what we're going to do is we're going to move on. I'm going to jump here a little bit for the sake of time on to page five. Now, Mr. Goodwill is going to have a conversation because they always have these conversations in Pilgrim's Progress, and Goodwill is going to talk to Christian, and he has an interesting question. How is it that you came alone? How is it that you came alone? And um, if you look to uh, point B there, it says, Goodwill is delighted to see Christian within his gate, but his heart goes out beyond uh, beyond Christian. As he asks, how is it that you came alone? And I always thought it was interesting, too, is that uh, it's a little bit almost like it's interesting uh, in the voice or in the wording again. It sounds again like, I'm glad you're here, but why are you alone? Why are you alone? Right, and I was just thinking about that. Uh, in the Christian life, is that a lot of times we start out with companions, we start out with people. I mean, think for example, when you're young and you have your your posse, your Jesus posse, okay, and so uh, these are individuals that you went to youth group with, you went to church with, you know, you did uh, a lot of activities with, and so on, and so forth. And you're all pretty much at the same place in some form or fashion. You all love Jesus, you're all professing Christians, you're all um. Uh, involved in the very similar activities maybe it's uh, evangelism feeding the poor whatever and then you get older and you start realizing that your friends that you had this exact same experience with they're not following Christ or they're in a different place or, or they're uh, and you when you come into contact with them years later you realize that you're the last man standing right it could be also, it could be anything. It could be a, uh, whether as a, as a growing up in the church, it could be in a family, right? Because a lot of times a, you can have a Christian family and different things happen and you start feeling again it's like, um, you know, most of my family has fallen away or they, their, their profession of faith was not real or didn't uh, didn't uh, uh, continue. And again, I feel like I'm alone, right? And so the same thing again, so goodwill ask them, why are you alone? And poor Christian basically says, look, um, everybody knew about my pilgrimage the whole town knew about this they uh, they heard again that that what i was saying is that our city is in the city of destruction and then he has an interesting line there is that um that's in point c uh, goodwill says did any of them know of your coming and they did uh but the interesting thing too is he asked him about his family he says where's your family at and I just thought that was heartbreaking again, because you'll see this over and over again in these interviews, that the interviewees will ask Christians, where's your family at? And you can feel again with, with Christians, there's a heartbreak there. Is that, you know what? Um, I shared the gospel with my family. I, I shared them what was it written in the book. And instead of them believing and being with me on this pilgrimage, where are they? They're sitting, they're, they mocked me. They, they rejected me. They thought I was crazy, right? Um, and they're still in the state of destruction. Now, the good news, of course, is that eventually in part two of the book, that entire family, Christian's entire family, will basically do the exact same thing Christian's doing, right? But unfortunately, Christian doesn't know that, right? So, um, and then one more person, too, is that as uh, Christian's recounting uh, his journey up to this point, he mentions opposite and pliable. So here's pliable again, right? And uh, and so it mentions on your uh, in the middle of that uh, page on page five. Then Goodwill says, "Alas, poor Pliable, is celestial glory so of, of so, so small a value to him that he does not count it worth running the hazard of a few difficulties to obtain it." And it's interesting again is that um, you know uh, Christians going to talk about what happened to obstinate, what happened to pliable, and um, it's interesting is that. Uh, if, uh, in that in ca- the recounting is that Christian uh, doesn't uh, judge pliable okay? in fact Christian basically says "Is you know what is that it's all of God's grace it's all of God's grace is that yes he fell away and he went back but I'm no better except for God's grace I would have done the exact same thing and what did we see what did a Christian do that reminded him and he's being humble here about you know um, that kind of humility, what would what, what a Christian do? After he got out of the slav, the swan, did he go directly to the, the wicked gate? Who did he run into? Worldly wise. Worldly wise man, that's right. So Mr. Worldly wise man, again, who's Mr. Worldly wise man? And don't say he's worldly wise. He's a man who's worldly wise, no. You know, he's so unsophisticated, right? He's the world, he represents the world, especially the world's view about religion, right? The world's view about religion right because he sees that burden that the burden that's on christians back he sees the struggle christians have and he sees all these all covered in grime and dirt and so on he says hey man there's an easier way to get that burden off your back right what was the what was his advice mr worldly wise man, it's the world's def- the world's uh a solution to our sin problem what's the world's solution to our sin problem Morality, right? Um, Salvation by works, right? Just be a good person, clean up your act, keep your nose clean. Other metaphors I could use for my generation, Um, you know. Just this this idea again is that somehow, some way, if I just be going to do religious activities and duties and so on and so forth, that that's going to be enough for God. Okay, that somehow I'm going to earn. God's marriage, his salvation, his favor and get into heaven. And a lot of people think that, right? In our culture, in our world, right? People generally believe they're not going to go to hell. They generally believe, again, is that they're going to be a good enough person and God's going to grade on the curve, right? And you remember, again, when Christian goes to the, the legality, right? I mean, to see Mr. Legality, um, he hits a huge hill, right? And again, it represents Mount Sinai. And so the point, of course, is that uh, Christian has already betrayed. Christian has already gotten off the path. He's already done what basically Pliable did, and he feels that, and he's, he's humble about that. And that's one thing I like about Christian's character is that he realizes it's all of grace. It's all, he's, there's no boasting. There's no bragging, saying, you know, Pliable, he's Gumby. He's a jerk. He's unreliable. You know, he's stupid. He says, he says, I'm no better. Yet for the grace of God, there go I. And I think sometimes we've got to remember that. I think we like to think we're, we get a little proud. And by the way, that's another thing that Christians are going to struggle with too is with spiritual pride. All right? So um, Goodwill says, at the very bottom of page five here, final words of encouragement. Goodwill then said, we refuse, uh, we refuse interest to no sincere pilgrim, notwithstanding, on page six, wickedness they have done before they arrived here. Therefore, my friend, come with me, and I will teach you about the way you you, sh- you must go. Look ahead of you. Do you see that narrow way? That is the way you must go. And we've already talked about this. And I know this sounds this is this is obvious and this is easy and so on. But the narrow way. I like the description of that. That's in the next line there. It was built by the patriarchs, prophets, Christ, and His apostles, and is as straight as can be. That is the only way you must go. Again, okay, let's stop right there. So, again, when we think about the Christian life, the metaphor, again, is that are we on the narrow path? Okay, Christ is the narrow path. The gospel is the narrow path. But we are navigating through this life, and you have this, this metaphor used a lot, is that, you know, are we on the narrow path? And it's a narrow path. It's not that, you remember the broad path, the broad road leads to what? Destruction. That's right. And so a lot of times, again, just to, to simplify it for us, again, every single day, are we on that narrow path? And so, and I, and I, and I love that, because then Christian goes, well, says, um, uh, he asks a question, are there no turnings or windings by which a pilgrim may lose his way? And then Goodwill answers, yes. There are many side paths that intersect with the narrow way, but they are crooked and wide. This is how you, must dis- you may distinguish the right from the wrong. Only the right path is straight and narrow. And so the whole thing is, again, is the, uh, you know, the, another metaphor is that, are you on the straight and narrow? I don't know if you've ever heard that before. Yeah, some old people know this. Yeah, are you on the straight and narrow, right? But it's true. Older, excuse me, mature people know that phrase. But it's true, again. Um, and so here we go. So next, the next uh, segue here is that Goodwill is going to recommend appoint uh, Christian to the house of the interpreter. So from Pilgrim's Progress, the text says, Then Christian began to gird up his loins and to address himself to, to his journey. So the other told him that by, he had gone some distance from the gate, he would come to the house of interpreter at whose door he should knock. Oh, there you go. And he would show him excellent things. i was, always love that line. So Christian took leave of his friend and again bid him Godspeed, then he went over until he came to the house of interpreter where he knocked over and over and over and over again. All right. So there's that knocking thing again. And at last one came to the door and asked who was there. And I always love it, again, is that a lot of times when these individuals come to the door, they're described as being grave, okay, grave, okay? Uh, and the word grave can mean serious, all right, or authoritative, all right? Um, in this case here, interpreter, you know, uh, is what, what does interpreter personify? Well, who wants to take a stab at this one? Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit without a doubt, Okay. Because again, when uh, the importance again is that the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God, is again illuminating His word. He is teaching us. He's revealing to us again spiritual things. right? If you are truly born again, again, you are indwelled by the Spirit of God, and He's sanctifying you, he's, he's, uh, His light, His leading and so on, is revealing to us again, things that we need to know about the Christian life. Yes? Right? And so the, and, and this never ends, by the way. I mean, this Holy Spirit is constantly teaching, and a lot of times with me, reteaching over and over and over again important spiritual truths that I need to learn. So he brings him into this house, right? I love this scene here. So it's a house, an interpreter, um, basically it's a picture in your mind, a house, and they have a candle, all right? And so interpreter is basically leading him, giving him like this tour of the house, right? And there's seven rooms, there's seven uh, uh, things that, that Christian needs to see. And so, if you look at on page uh, six here, if you look at uh, the very uh, A1 there, the first lesson that the interpreter sets before Christian is to show him a picture hanging in a private room. Christian notices immediately that the man portrayed in the picture is a man with a very grave countenance. That's a serious, authoritative look again. This man represents a true minister of the gospel. And again, for, for, for Bunyan, he's picturing again a 17th century Puritan preacher. Alright. Uh, and it says, his continent speaks to, next page over, the seriousness of his calling before God. This minister knows and understands his responsibilities as a, as a watchman. We talked about a watchman. We did the study of Hosea, what a watchman is, what he does, and a shepherd of, of Christ's flock. He is aware that his vocation involves real dangers as well as great rewards. And I, was, I always love this scene here because, again, in our day and age, um, a lot of Christians they church shop. They church shop, right? Because a lot of times, again, when you, you talk to young Christians, or you talk to Christians, and again, you know, what are you looking for in a church? Right? you get that kind of question or talk, you get the impression. Uh, there's I um, okay, anyway, I was, no. i um, okay, so, <laughs> get myself in trouble here. Um, so, there's a, um, but part of that too is again, what, uh, when it's about, you know, a minister, a preacher, a pastor, again, what are you looking for? And that's like when you're going to shop for a car you're looking to buy something, right? So what are you looking for? What's, what qualities, what standards would impress you to want to basically be there and to, to be under this, this minister, this, this teacher, and so on? And what do you think some, some modern qualifications would be for today? Worship. Worship. What do you mean by that? Uh, the aesthetics of it. Yeah. Okay. Snazzy, entertaining, Snazzy. you're right, lights, smoke, neon lights, the band, The band. yeah, those darn drums, right, the devil's drums, no, sorry, excuse <laughs> <laughs> they're not devil drums. Okay, so, um, but what about the minister, though? What about the minister? The ones that are popular, the ones that are famous, the ones that get all the attention, what, what are they like? And say things that don't hurt your feelings. That's right. They make you feel good, right? They make you feel good, right? What else? They're entertaining, right? They're almost like they're entertainers. They get up there, you know, they kind of do their thing. They got the look, right? You got to have the look, right? <laughs> Okay, you don't. Okay, Um, and then the the things they're sharing a lot of times again is going to be to uh, you know keep your attention. It's going to be relevant. It's going to be something that's going to be uh, you know fluffy, tickle your ears. ears, There we go. We're going to build Bible here again. Yeah, tickle your ears, right? And unfortunately, again, when they talk about you know how to build a church, you want it to be entertaining, right? You want it to be again where people are going to uh, they're going to the, the big show. Right, and again, this is totally diametrically opposite of that. This is totally diametrically opposite of that. So, the very first point they have on here, the description is: you think of a painting here of a pastor, of again a, uh, a a biblical pastor. Is number one, he's a serious person that is temperate, sober, dignified, uh, earnest, and so on. Not and not flippant, uh, entertaining, or frequently talking about himself. Hmm. Okay. And again, that's I, I, important. Again, so when, anytime anyone enters into that pulpit, they are bringing you the word of God, right? They are again uh, pointing you to Christ. They realize again this is an opportunity that our responsibility God has given to them to preach the gospel, not to entertain you, right? Not to point to themselves, not to sell product. Again. So again, you, this idea again is that we are to uh, you know expect from the pulpit again someone who is actually preaching the word of God and pointing to Christ and explaining the gospel uh, clearly. Also, next the next uh, subpoint there, eyes lifted to heaven. His eyes were lifted to he- from he- t- uh, toward heaven, for there is his future home, his Lord, his delight and priority. This man's ministry is God-centered, God-centered, not man-centered. And I like that whole idea that eyes lifted to heaven because the flip side of that is worldliness alright again uh, and he makes that very clear between, division between the two next line there is the best of books in his hand he has the best book in his hands namely the Bible for he is a man of one book God's book and since in Bunyan's time the full authority of the Bible or its complete inerrancy and truthfulness as we would qualify today was du- uh, virtually undoubted and again, it's amazing, again, you can have men in the pulpit who rarely use this book. You hear a lot of stories, right? A lot of great uh, inspiring, you know, slogans or whatever. else. Uh, wokeism, I use the word wokeism. You know, social justice, all this kind of stuff again. But again, we are to be people of the book. And the man who's preaching from the, uh, from the pulpit, of course, is going to be uh, faithful to what God says in his book. And that ties in the next point here. The law, the law of truth is written upon his lips. He speaks the law of truth, not fables, smooth talk, moralistic opinions, etc. And I've got here a couple quotes, and I'll just, uh, just take a time to skip some of these. But the last one at the very bottom there is from John MacArthur. And MacArthur says specifically, Evangelical preaching ought to reflect our conviction that God's word is infallible and inerrant. Too often it is not. In fact, there's a discernible trend. Next page of contemporary evangelicalism away from biblical preaching and a drift toward experience-centered, pragmatic, topical approach in the pulpit, and so on. And again, so again, uh, the, the, the importance of God's word being preached by God's man is important. He pleads with men. Next point there. He pleads with men to be reconciled to God. We'll look at 2 Corinthians 5 later on. He is in earnest concerning the souls of men, appearing guileless while ministering with gentleness, fond affection, yet bold, serious appeals. And I love that, again, is that um, he is he's conveying urgency, right? Again, today is the day of salvation, that anyone who's entering into that church again is going to hear the gospel and to realize what's at stake, right? The world behind his back, we've already talked about it before. He has put the world behind his back rather than in front of his heart. This is not a justification for monastic isolationism, but rather an indication of his renunciation of the world, yet while living and witnessing to the world. We hear this all the time, again, is that the world we were, you know, were to be in the world, but not of the world. And again, he's, um, he's uh, identifying, again, the, the, the things that are going on in the world, which are opposite of the gospel and of Christ. And then finally, the glory of his reward is in the next world. He has a crown of gold over his head, representing that perspective reward of recognition for his faithfulness. While the world may deride such a narrow-minded minister or fundamentalist in today's terminology, yet we have here God's high estimate of him. I love that line there, God's high estimate of him. Having a, a godly preacher, a faithful preacher of the word, is a gift, is a gift. And also, too, we need to be praying for our preachers and for the, anyone who's in that pulpit, be praying for them right, instead of criticizing all the time. Just leave it at that. Um, The next line says, now you have showed you this picture first because the man who who it portrays is the only man whom the Lord of the celestial city has authorized to be your guide in all the difficult situations that you may encounter along the way. Therefore, pay attention to, to what I've showed you and carefully weigh in your mind what you've seen. At least in your journey, you meet with some who pretend to lead you along the right way, while in reality, their way leads to death. It matters who's in the pulpit. Then, and you have lots, again, verses that, that tie into this. when We talk about the dangerous uh, false spiritual guides. Uh, I'm just going to read, uh, obviously, from Matthew chapter 24. Jesus says, and uh, many false prophets will arise and mislead many. And the tickling of the ears, we already talked about that, and so on. Uh, you have the Apostle Paul in Acts 20 uh, to the Ephesian elders, Paul says to them, Be on guard for yourselves and, all, all, and for, your, for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the, the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves, wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. And these are warnings that we, ought, we constantly need to be to, to hear today. All right, any questions on the first scene, the first picture? Okay, easy. What's about the dusty room? Okay, this may be some of your houses I do not know. Okay, so he took him by the hand and led him to a very large parlor that was full of dust because it was never swept. The witch, after he review, reviewed a little while, the interpreter called for a man to sweep. Now, when he began to sweep, the dust became so abundantly to fly about that Christian was almost there, therewith been choked. Then he said, the interpreter, to a damsel that stood by, bring hither the water. I love that. Bring hither the water and sprinkle the room. The, and which, she, when she had done, it was swept and cleansed with pleasure. Okay, remember, this is allegory, right? So uh, the, the parlor represents the heart of man. Right, that's the very first line there. And the dust is original sin and corruptions which have defiled man and made him unfit for the presence of God. Okay, it's filthy, it's dirty, it's a bunch of crud in there, okay? And uh, so what's going to happen is that uh, here comes the law. And we've talked about the law, and the, the law of God's going to be referenced over and over again in Pilgrim's Progress. We are seeing again with, uh, with Mr. Worldly Wiseman this idea that you know, keeping the law, supposedly, can, can uh, result in justification, Okay, keeping the law can somehow, uh, you can earn salvation. No, 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 no. Paul makes it very clear, and obviously, in Galatians, in Romans, we've already seen that. But one use of the law, again, is to reveal sin. We talk about the threefold use of the law. This is one of them, is to, to preaching of the law is to reveal sin. And so in point B here is Bunyan portrays here a simple illustration. The essence of Paul's teaching in Romans concerning the relationship between the law and the gospel. The man who comes in to sweep is the law. While the law is holy, righteous, and good, in that it is a reflection of God's perfect character, it cannot and was never meant to save men from their sins. The law defines sin, and then Paul makes reference here to Romans chapter 7. And uh, I'm going to just kind of skip this for the, the point of time, but you understand this. Okay, again, when the, the, when the, the law is being preached again, it, God, by the Holy Spirit, reveals uh, what's inside. What's inside. And makes its situation worse. In fact, it's interesting that the illustration there is that when the sweeping's going right and the, the, all the dust is in the air and so on, you know, here's Christians choking on it, right? And again, this is the idea is that when God's revealing the crud that's in our hearts, the sin that's in our hearts, and and how bad it is, again, it's um, it's it's a it's a mess and makes it, things even worse. And so it's interesting. Again, you have some illustrations. You, uh, I've heard a lot of times in preaching of the law. And, uh, and these are the, the next points here, the bullet point here for illustrations. Uh, you got three real quickly. Number one, the law does not cleanse. It encourages and strengthens sin, like a, a park bench sign that warns against, about wet paint, okay? or you know, the sign says, don't walk on the grass. Right? What happens? You see the sign, and you walk on the grass. You get the idea. Okay. Um, they also, the law is like an x-ray machine that can reveal hidden depths. It's like a scalpel that can cut, probe, and lay bare deep-seated corruption. It's like a magnifying glass that can enlarge concealed disorders. It is a stick that can stir stir up sediment in a seemingly clear glass of water. And then finally, the law is diagnostic. Again, it it, it makes a diagnosis, again, of what's inside, and what's inside is terrible. What's inside is terrible. And again, the only the gospel is going to be, again, and that's the next line there. I'm not, in fact, we'll move on to the next page here. The damsel with the water is the gospel. If you look over on page 10, the very top there, Once the law has failed to cleanse the room, a damsel came and sprinkled the room with water. The damsel represents the gospel, which can take a heart clouded by sin and misery and bring forgiveness, cleansing, and peace. Okay, any questions on the, the credit room? Now, all right, one more, and then we'll be done for today. Let's talk about children, two children. And I'm not talking about your family, hopefully. But you have two children. So I saw more of in my dream that the interpreter took him by the hand and had him into a little room where sat two little children, each one in his chair. The name of the elder was Passion and the other, was, uh, the other, the other name of the other was Patience. Passion seemed to be much discontented, sounds familiar. And but Patience was very quiet. All right, so you've got two children and they're, t- they're, they're totally different. Okay? You've got passion on one side and then you have patience on the other. Um, by the, as I said, so both children have the promise of their governor of great treasure in the future that is provided they are prepared to wait in according with his timing. Okay, so but there's, a, there's a character again who basically promises great treasure to both of the children. He says all you have to do is wait. And you know how this is going to go. All right? Passion is anxious to have its inheritance immediately. While his companion, Patience, is content to wait till the next year is instructed. Um, and so Passion, I've given you like, like uh, five points there about descriptions about why, again, he represents those in the world who live only for here and now, right? Um, I remember my, uh, uh, with my students, trying to keep up with them, which is hard, by the way. They just make my, that's why my hair is so gray. Um, and uh, one of the things is slang. They try, they all the times like, uh, I can't keep up with their music, I can't keep up with their slang and other things as well. And so they'll come in and they'll like say something, right? And I have no idea what they're talking about. And so one of them, uh, not too long ago, was YOLO. YOLO, okay? Not GOLO, it was YOLO, all right? And I said, what in the world? And they wrote it on the board, so I, so I understand. It's so, okay, tell me what that means. So for those of you who are out there who are younger, what is YOLO. YOLO. Let's get only once. That's right. So again, that's an old idea again, right? But they think it's new, all right. They always think it's new, all right. And again, that's passion, all right. In our day, going back, the uh, you know, whole thing about uh, Robin Williams, the, the movie, the, the Poet Society, and seize the day. Right, remember that? Seize the day. Carpidium. Yeah, yeah, right. So also, uh, okay. Anyway, good idea. Uh, also, uh, veruca. If I use the word veruca, salt. What's the veruca? Willy Wonka and the chocolate factory. Someone knows Veruca, that's right, because there's a morality play. Willy Wonka's a morality play, all right? And Veruca is that rude, passion girl, all right, who wants it now. Remember, she always wants it now, okay? I want it now, right, okay? Yes, and you know what happens to her because of that. Um, And the whole point, of course, is it gonna be contrasting between the temporary and the eternal, the temporary and the eternal. Um, we already t- looked at a Hebrews chapter 11 for example where it talks about what is faith and faith is assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen and that second line there the conviction of things not seen and one of the, 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 the great things about being a Christian is God's promising us things that we have not seen yet alright um, one of my favorite verses is 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verses 9 and 10 but in verse 9 the apostle Paul writes things which eye has not seen and ears not heard And which have not entered entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love Him, right? So eyes not seen, ears not heard, which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love Him, all right? And so we have God is saying over and over and over again, the best is yet to come, right? No matter, and everything in this life, as you already know, is temporary. Everything is fading away, right? It's a vapor. It's a mist, right? Um, And that this world is not our home. And so, we're you know we're patients. Now on the flip side, of that you have passion. Who's a rebel? Uh, they want it all now. YOLO. Um, there's a they make fun of those who are waiting for again for a treasure an eternal treasure. Um, they're a child of this world. Their appetites, their desires again are worldly. And then finally, again, they're, they're indulgent. And so you can kind of read through that, you can see that. The next line there, patience depicts those who have their hearts conquered by grace and subdued by God's spirit. Patience is content to wait for the best things, things that are lasting and eternal. Um, and again, I highly recommend taking a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16-18, through 18, where Paul talks about that. Um, in fact, I'm going to end it with that just today. I'm just, It's a good place to stop. Let me just go into that real quick. These are some of my uh, favorite passages. I guess I keep saying that, but that's good. We should all have favorite. These are the steps here. And Paul says in uh, chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, Therefore we do not lose heart. Though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comprehension. While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And you can just think about that, contemplate on that, meditate on that. And again, I, I do. And Paul's going to go on in chapter 5 talking about um, that we groan. We groan. Okay? This idea that we live in this body of death and we want to be clothed right, with immortality. Right? To, be in that, to be in that glorified state, to be with Christ, and to receive the inheritance I mean, Paul and the scripture talk a lot about that, that, that which we, we, we hope for is an inheritance, our portion, right? All that God has for us. And this world, there's no comparison between what's in this world compared to what God has for us, right, in Christ. And I'm going to stop at that for today.